as we uh, continue in our series looking at what on earth is God doing? That question which is uh, so often just below the surface in people's uh, reflections on life and wondering what is going on. We are continuing our series looking at um, the answers that scripture gives us to that question because initially we can say what on earth is God doing in an accusatory sort of way but actually the whole narrative of scripture from beginning to end provides us with some answers and some understanding of just what that looks like. Actually it's not Genesis 1, 1 to 11, that's by one of my slides I didn't get to just looking at transitioning um, but let's pray as uh, God uh, speaks to us through his word. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. Take us and use us to love and serve all people in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we are exploring what on earth is God is doing, it's summarised by way of an answer in this one statement. And this particular um, passage we're looking at is incredibly profound in helping us understand not just what God's purposes are, but about ourselves as human beings, human race, and about God's intention for this world as well. Because God is a God of mission. And the language of mission means that... Um, an agent is sent, someone is sent with a task to be fulfilled, to be undertaken. And the mission of God starts with God sending himself into the world. The Father sends the Word, the Son, and speaks. And the Spirit is sent to bring about change and to transform. In fact, our understanding of God comes through observing God in action. And as I mentioned last week, God is not a, a philosophical concept that we sort of uh, construct a notion of God. God is a, a being beyond our full comprehension. But what we glimpse through seeing in God in action tells us about the character and the purposes of God. So what is God's mission plan? It can be summarised in this one line that you'll hear a lot more about in uh, coming months and throughout my ministry as a whole. It's summarised as shalom in the sanctuary of God. And my goal this morning is to unpack just what that means, what that could look like and how it shapes the realities of the world that we see around us now. But to start with a bit of a recap from last week as we did look at the opening verses um, 1 to 11 of Genesis 1 and in particular we focused on the two first verses that would take a lifetime to actually really unpack further. Um, the first verse of the Bible, the first verb of the Bible is the word Genesis, hence the name Genesis. Uh, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the rest of Scripture, right through to the end of Revelation 22, is the unfolding of just what that means and begins to look like. From the original creation project through its completion, the goal that it's intended to become 
as reflected in the final chapter of the Bible. Second verse then gives the context for that. What is this act of creation? And it starts at a point where the earth was total chaos. And the language for chaos, um, and it's also picked up in uh, verses 3 and 4, is the language of uh, a wilderness, of something that is desolate and is unable to produce life. And actually, um, nearly all the ancient Near Eastern creation narratives address the problem of chaos. That was a very familiar starting point. But where this Genesis account takes us is in a very different direction about that. So the movement from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation 22 is a movement from chaos to order, from that which is destructive and that which is uncreated to that which is fully formed and growing and growing into all that it was intended to become. It's a movement from darkness to light. So that was what we just uh, touched on last week, providing the context. Then as we saw the, the, uh, the days of creation unfold, they came in a particular format. Um, God spoke, something happened, then God observed and said it was good. The first three days of creation talk about what we could describe as the architecture of this creation, the framework was put into place. But it's a bit like having the, the framework in an empty house and it's good, but until the residents come into the house, it's not really the home. So days four, five and six correspond to days one, two and three. Day four puts the contents into day one. Day five puts the contents into day two. Day six puts the content, the population, into day three, that is to say, the living beings that come. Something of the background is also conveyed in very evocative terms that's hard to, to nail down and say precisely what is intended. But it is this notion of darkness that hovers and that is a threatening um, presence. And uh, this photo is one that I took a number of years ago um, at Karakalinga Beach in the mid-afternoon, one sun, summer afternoon in Adelaide. Doesn't look quite like the bright <laughs> area you would like to be. And a uh, bit of a backstory is that we have been planning to, um, uh, have been offered a, a, a shack to, to make use of down there, um, had settled, and things were not going well. Had, um, just things were beginning to spiral a little bit. And I have two versions of this photo. One is of, this, of the wider sun breaking through the clouds. And the other one has got this one here. Who's down the bottom there, John? That's John and Fiona. You can see those two little figures down in that bottom left corner. Because at the point in which we we're almost given up and saying, look, it's just not working out, let's just head back home. <coughs> Fiona and John walk down to the beach. And at that moment... Through the dark clouds, the sun broke through and reminded us that behind the darkness of the impending storm and the clouds was the sun. It had been there all along. We just lost sight of it. 
And that has stood for us as a, uh, an enduring image to remind us that when we go through those moments, those seasons, those days, where everything does seem to be overwhelming to us, God's faithfulness, God's creative power that is sustaining this world continues nonetheless and will prevail over that darkness. So against that backdrop, the, uh, the narrative that we get in Genesis, actually over against the other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives which explain troubles that have happened because God is cranky, God's woken up in a bad mood, God's waiting for a gift to be offered in some way to win them over. There is none of that in the Genesis accounts. Rather, into this chaotic and fearful state where the, the darkness hovers over the deep, <coughs> the next verse is the cornerstone of our faith that changes everything. Thank you, John. Where will I be without John? This lays the foundation of our belief and our hope. A bit later in our service, Jana's going to lead us into a statement of faith. It's actually not the same as a creed, but it's good for us to realise that Scripture contains a number of uh, affirmations that we can affirm. We believe and trust. This is, gives us the foundation for that belief, the confidence and the hope that we have as we look out into a, um, a world that can be pretty messy at times. This verse changes literally everything. And the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God, it's all the same word, swept over the face of the waters and things began to change, to be transformed and order came out of darkness Light came out of darkness, order, order came out of the chaos. So that's where we went to last week. So now we're jumping to a little bit later in uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. We're not going through the whole creation narrative because our purpose is more, is more particular. And here we come to day 6, the final day of creation before we come to the Sabbath day. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every wind bird of every kind. And God saw it was good. So this, the, the, the waters and the sky has now been populated and uh, previously the animals have been populating the land that there comes. So God blessed them, saying, this is entirely as I've intended. So these living creatures have been tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. But then that pattern of creation as it's described in chapter 1 takes a whole new dimension. It goes beyond the let God, God said, let there be and it happens and then God reflects on what he's created and says it's good. For the final stage for the jewel of creation, the crown, the central piece that is so vital for it to becoming the fully functioning creation that was intended. God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let this humankind 
have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth and over every, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Um, and just picking out one of the subtleties is that the word that's used for a man as in a male is a different word to what is used here. Here it's the generic word for humankind. So there's no distinction at this stage. And the male and female we'll touch on more next week. So the creation of humanity is located within the mission of God in establishing a, a creation, the creational purposes of God. One thing it tells us which is so important and often overlooked is that we cannot understand what it means to be human without appreciating our physicality. We are made as embodied beings and we are placed in a material creation, a material world. So it is an error to reduce the sense of we, all that really matters about us is our soul. Everything else is secondary. Actually, no, it's not. This body will wear out. We're already doing a fair task of that after a week of unpacking boxes and moving things around. And it will be replaced one day with a new super improved version. Um, but it does mean that we can't understand what it means to be human without reference to the environment, without reference to creation, to the world that we have around us. We are placed in that creation and we have responsibilities within it. So we need to understand that we can't detach ourselves from the questions about the world around us and things like climate change and about um, responsible and sustainable use of land and making sure we are tending it. I'm going to come to that in a minute. So God created humans, male and female, and two words are used to describe what is distinctive about humans over against the rest of the created order. This is what distinguishes us from fish and from birds and from uh, animals and anything else in creation is summed up in two key words. The first one is that humans have been created in the image of God, unlike the rest of the created order. Now to be, image, to be created in the image of God talks about the role that we have been given. So important to try and get our head around this one. The word image isn't talking about um, the way we, are, um, we look or present. Um, it's talking about the role that we're given. In the ancient world, when a sovereign would come through and uh, either capture a city or take, take sovereignty over a city and then would depart, that monarch, that sovereign, would leave an image of their presence to remind people. We have it today, we have statues around the city. But it isn't just a piece of history. This particular image also carries the authority of that sovereign in their absence. And that the people that he has appointed, that was usually he, very occasionally a she, the people that were appointed 
to exercise the authority of the sovereign carried the image with them to show that they had their power and authority. Now that is so easy for us to understand in a commonwealth. What is the image we have of the Queen of Australia who is not present in our midst? It's the crown. So where we have the crown in various areas, whether it's the postal service or whether it's in the police or whether it's in the courts or whether it's in the political system, wherever there is authority exercised on behalf of the crown, the crown is a reminder of that authority. The image of God is like being appointed to be governor's general in this creation. We are tasked with going about God's business, God's mission, as God intends. And we have a role to play in furthering that. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So when we've been created in the image of God, it means that we carry a responsibility, a role, that is not shared by the rest of creation. That also gives us some capacities, because that's an enormous responsibility. I don't know how you feel for a task with, oh, by the way, you're responsible for creation for now. Okay. It's good that it's shared <laughs> across male and female. It's good that it's shared across all humanity. The point I want to make at this stage, and it's answering a, a very relevant question, it means that all humanity, regardless of people's uh, cultural backgrounds, their nationality, whether they're male or female, whether they are saved or unsaved, whether they are uh, people who follow God as the covenant people or whether they are um, unbelievers, regardless of all that, all humanity convey to some degree the image of God. For some it can be buried pretty deep. For most of us it's pretty tattered and it's knocked around and we've done a pretty bad job of damaging it from here and there, but it is there. And I want to come back right at the end for what that means for how we relate to the world outside the church, to the world in the wider community as well. But the image of God is across all humanity regardless of anything else that may be an identifying uh, subgroup of creation of, of humanity. To enable humanity to do that, we are uniquely created in the likeness of God. Six times in this little passage, these verses, it says the image and the likeness of God. Human race has been given capacities that is not found anything like the extent that it does in the wider uh, created world. We have a capacity to know what is right and wrong and to make choices that may be either good choices or bad choices. We don't expect that same capacity in the animal world. Though at times I do wonder with our cat and our dog whether they do actually know what is right and wrong and what is naughty and they have an amazing ability to freeze and just look down when they know that they've done something wrong. Behaviourists tell us it's just a learned instinct, but I reckon they know. But let's broaden it out, for instance, to a cow. If a cow knocks over a post in a field, we don't go up to the cow and berate it for being morally corrupt. What were you doing? You know, making a choice. 
The cow probably just had an itch and wanted to rub the itch and just happened to push the post over. The cow is not created in the image and likeness of God. We have this amazing capacity to communicate, to think, to reason, to problem solve, to build communities, to be creative, to make uh, moral judgments, to exercise responsibilities, to live rightly, uh, to have a concern for justice that is not shared by anything else in the created world. So whilst we are the most evolved of the human sp of uh, created beings, if you like, to use that language, nothing has evolved anything like that because we are, have that added extra, that being in the image and likeness of God that separates us off from the rest of the living species. So, what does it mean that we are to be about? This is where it's going to jump into chapter 2. We're going to do more about this next week. But the Lord God took the man, and this word is actually hadam, uh, with a generic name Adam later comes, but at this stage it's, uh, an, it's an incomplete creation. This earth creature and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and take care of it. Now the reason that it is yet to be a fully created being is because the woman hasn't been created yet and it's not good for man to be alone. Ask most women that, they'll tell you. Um, more about that next week, how both male and female are defined and are needed to fulfil this responsibility. But what I want to focus here is that the Garden of Eden is the sanctuary that I've been talking about and the work to be done as this ongoing creation project is to cultivate and to take care of it. And that can be literally planting crops and, and uh, things of that nature, but it can also mean cultivating, culture making. Um, all that, that creates community is also conveyed by this. It's everything we contribute to the... Uh, the enhancement of the world and the community and society and our neighbourhoods and our homes is all captured by this word. And to take care of it, to exercise stewardship, to use creation responsibly, not to abuse it. And that's where so what we've often got it so wrong. Now we know that humanity has been singularly unsuccessful in doing that and there's a whole narrative of redemption that we will get to in chapter 3 of, of Genesis and beyond. But for here we can see that all humanity are tasked with this work. Sometimes it's said that people are saying, well, I want to do the mission and ministry of God. I've got to come to the church, perhaps become a minister or something of that nature. The mission of God is as extensive as all that humans do in whatever sphere we're in, whether it's in agriculture or hospitality or in education or in medicine or... Even beer-making, it all comes under this area of being part of the mission of God. So you see how broad this notion that we are partners with God in this mission is so foundational. And to encourage and support and assist one another in doing this is part of God's expectation of, hum of humanity. What we need to do is to be uh, encouraging and replenishing ourselves in that and to do so in a way which is responsible. So, back to this notion of shalom in the sanctuary of God as being the mission of God. 
This word, this Hebrew word shalom, um, is an incredibly rich term um, that no single English word does justice to. It's like receiving one of those gift baskets. In fact, when we came in on Thursday night, a week and a bit ago, <laughs> uh, having just arrived with the removalists and so on, we saw on the kitchen bench in the rectory a lovely hamper of chocolates and sweets and all sorts of other goodies in that hamper. Thank you for whoever put that together. That was a wonderful treat to come and see. The word shalom is like a hamper that you just throw all these wonderful notions in and it wraps them all up. It means the fullness and flourishing of God's creation. It means wellness, wholeness, prosperity, peace, to be restored, to be replenished. A world where all is right and in harmonious rest is conveyed by the single word shalom. So much so that if you go to a Jewish synagogue or greetings for those who come from a background within Judaism, you will hear the word shalom often because it is such a rich word. In fact, when we have the greeting of peace, um, I noticed some picked that up actually, I hadn't even mentioned it at the 8.30 service in the communion service. They were saying shalom be with you which is that, that fullness, that notion of peace be with you. So there's this wonderful quote from a, uh, an American um, theologian with the name Cornelius Plantinga. Just love that name. I'm Cornelius, Cornelius Plantinga. Anyway, he's written a wonderful book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. But he has this definition, and once I first read this, it transform my understanding of God's mission and purposes. So this has stayed with me and continues to stay with me. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as... uh, as its creator and saviour, this is actually cut the screen on my in front of me, uh, opens doors and welcomes creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And shalom is the mission of the church. Our calling is to cultivate a little patch of shalom in our church community, in the space that we inhabit, but even more so in the social space, the fellowship that we inhabit. If people want to see what it begins to look like, they should be able to come to church on a Sunday and taste, a foretaste, an appetizer of shalom and leave church renewed, encouraged, um, replenished in that space as well. So what does it mean when it comes to our understanding of this mission of God? It means that in the world around us, the image and likeness of God is to be found. We need to lead the way in showing what it looks like, but also to respect and to water and to nurture it where we see it in our neighbours, in our households, in our places of work, in our social groups, wherever we may be that image and likeness that can bring the blessing of God 
can be seen in all those contexts. Let me give an example of where it is often seen. When we as a community face famine, drought, bushfires, floods, earthquakes, storms and cyclones, anything of that nature, often it brings the best out of our wider community. People go and check on their neighbours. Are you okay? Um, is there anything we can do for you? Can we help you? Can we provide something for you? What are the urgent things that are needed? We've seen that happen in outback South Australia with foods and others. And it brings out the best qualities in our community because we think this is what, what is the right thing to do. This is what it is to live as a community, to respond to those needs. New Zealand did it after the, uh, the earthquake when Fiona and John and I were there for the Christchurch earthquakes and we saw the whole nation gather together. Some beautiful stories. There's one in Nelson of a, a woman who was trying to buy some toys and didn't um, have enough to pay. She was going for a checkout and uh, the crestfallen look on it and the person just behind said, I'll just take care of it. And you know, when we, when we find ourselves in that space, we know there's actually something good about that. Good about being in that space. It shouldn't just happen when there's a crisis. This is what it is to live well, to live rightly. And we should be about embodying it as a church and encouraging it in our neighbourhood. May God and his grace work that shalom in our own presence. And uh, this is what I'm hoping becomes our vision for St Matthew's, that we see ourselves as a sanctuary church, a place where we can be and uh, shape a touch of that Garden of Eden, both in terms of the physical space, but even more so in terms of our social and spiritual space as well. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And that is the task that we